Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Today I'll be revisiting one of my personal favorite series, A History of Childbirth. I created these videos after experiencing pregnancy and childbirth firsthand with the arrival of my first child. While I was researching all of the fascinating and terrifying experiences women of the past had, I was pregnant with my second child. I was incredibly fortunate to have relatively easy experiences with both babies, aside from mind-numbing 24-hour-a-day morning sickness for the first four months. The women in my family assured me that they had very fast, easy deliveries, and when the time came, so did I. Through all the doctor's appointments and ultrasounds, I thought about how different this quintessential human experience would have felt to women of the past, who had no idea what was going on in there, relied on primitive medicine, if any at all, and had to face the very real possibility that they might not survive through the ordeal to meet their baby. Creating and sharing the history of childbirth made me even more grateful for the healthy delivery of my own two beautiful babies. And so, without further ado, A History of Childbirth Throughout history, one thing has had more impact on women's lives than almost anything else, giving birth to children. We will explore various aspects of this paramount and awe-inspiring process and how it has changed across cultures and through time. From how we think about conception and fertility to some rather kooky pregnancy tests, from the day-to-day -day realities of pregnancy and how pregnant women were seen by their communities to the changing medical practices surrounding that most amazing and dangerous moment in women's lives. Childbirth. Conception. Where do babies come from? Today, anyone who paid attention in their life science class can tell you. But before microscopic eggs and sperm were discovered, people had no idea what went on in there, and they came up with some rather interesting theories about how new human life was made. It is thought that it took some time for early hunter-gatherers to make the connection between sex and pregnancy. After all, sex often occurs without a resulting pregnancy, and signs of conception do not appear until months after the act. 
It is thought that people in the Fertile Crescent finally caught on to the connection between sex and pregnancy when they began domesticating animals around 11,000 years ago. Figuring out that putting male and female animals together resulted in more animals would have been vital for domestication. Ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that all animals could be divided into two groups. Bloodless animals, insects, crustaceans, and other invertebrates that generated spontaneously, and blooded animals that required mating to reproduce. He theorized that females supplied the matter in the form of menstrual blood, while the male's seed gave the offspring form, like a seal stamping hot wax or a seed that was planted in fertile ground. Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, argued that both males and females produced seed which had to be commingled to create new life. But as there was no evidence of female seed, this theory was not widely accepted. The major monotheistic religions of the West, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, went with Aristotle's seed-planting theory. The ancient Greeks also believed that the womb, called the hysterica, was a separate entity that could move around a woman's body. If it went to her head, she would become hysterical. If a woman wanted to become pregnant, she should insert something sweet into her vagina to attract the womb there. Conversely, if she did not wish to conceive, she should try something smelly like garlic. In the Middle Ages, it was widely believed that a woman, naturally cold, needed a man's heat to conceive. During the Enlightenment, it was theorized that microscopic babies existed inside a woman's womb, and they required male seed to set their growth into motion. Sperm was first observed through a microscope in 1677 by Dutch scientist Antony von Lehoek. It took another 150 years for the female mammalian egg to be discovered by German scientist Karl Ernst von Bahr. The fusion of the egg and sperm of a starfish was observed by German zoologist Oskar Hertwig in 1876, and the mystery of conception was finally solved. Encouraging Fertility with so many off-base theories about how life began, many cultures throughout history saw infertility as a woman's problem, and the role of men in conception was rarely questioned. Women who wanted to conceive tried a lot of interesting techniques to make it happen. Fertility goddesses were prayed to and offered sacrifices in almost every culture throughout the world. Bastet and Isis in ancient Egypt, Chimalma by the Aztecs, Mama Okio by the Inca, Haumea by Native Hawaiians, Banka Mundi by Hindus, Kichijochen in Japan, Brigid by the Celts, Freya by the Norse, Afaiya by the Ancient Greeks, the Virgin Mary by Catholics, and the list goes on. Often women who desired to conceive would make special pilgrimages to altars or sacred places to pray and make offerings to these goddesses. Ancient Persian parents would dedicate their daughters to Anahita, goddess of the moon and fertility. The young women would live and worship at her temple and engage in religious prostitution. The girls who accepted the largest number of men were thought to be the most blessed by the goddess and would be highly sought after as wives when their time at the temple was over. Both ancient Babylonians and Chinese put a great deal of faith in astrology. Women would consult astrologists to chart the stars and advise them on the best times of the month and year for conception. 
The placenta, the organ that supports the life of a growing fetus and is delivered shortly after the baby, was prized by many cultures to promote fertility. Women in Eastern Europe would bite a freshly delivered placenta, and Chinese and Japanese women ate dried placenta. Women in Transylvania who did not want to have any more children would burn their placenta and place the ashes in their husband's drink. Consuming the reproductive organs of various animals has also been a popular fertility aid throughout the world. The ancient Egyptian Ebers papyrus suggests a rather interesting test for determining fertility. The juice of a watermelon is to be mixed with the milk of a mother who has borne a son and fed to the woman in question. If she vomits, she is fertile. If she only has flatulence, she will never bear again. Ancient Roman medical writer Pliny the Elder had two creative suggestions for ensuring conception. A woman could either eat the eye of a hyena with licorice and dill, or pluck two hairs from the tail of a female donkey that is being mounted and knot them together during sex. The medieval church exercised a great deal of control over the sex lives of the people. Sex was seen as a sin and a necessary evil to be performed only for procreation. The immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary, a pregnancy without the sin of sex, was seen as ideal, but that didn't work for most people. The church forbid sex during Lent, Advent, Whitsome Week, Easter Week, on feast days and fast days, Sundays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. That meant that there were only 105 days of the year where sex was permitted. Sex was also prohibited during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and menstruation, during daylight, while naked, and while in church. But we're still here, so it's safe to bet that most of these decrees were not strictly followed. Ironically, the men dictating these rules were monks and priests who were supposed to be celibate, so were particularly underqualified to educate others on sex and reproduction. Most of the advice they offered on fertility was to pray to God and the Virgin Mary, or in particularly desperate circumstances, to make a pilgrimage. Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, suffered multiple miscarriages and stillbirths. She made a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Frideswide to pray for a healthy son, but her prayers were never answered. Henry VIII's desire for a male heir was well known, and many men of his time shared this desire. Medieval medical book The Trotula recommends that if a woman desire to conceive a man-child, she must take the womb of a hare, dry it, powder it, and drink it in wine. If she desired a made child, she should do the same but with the hare's testicles. Marie Antoinette was married to Louis XVI of France for seven years without bearing any children, and she was blamed and hated for failing to produce a future king. It is believed that Louis' doctors finally determined that he was suffering from phimosis, a condition where the foreskin is too tight and causes painful erections. It is also suspected that the shy young couple didn't understand the mechanics of sex. Once Louis was circumcised and explained the birds and the bees, the couple had four children. In the 1700s, London doctor James Graham set up a fertility clinic he called the Temple of Health. There his patients would listen to soft music while Graham, the high priest, would administer mild electrical shocks and his famous ethereal balm. 
If a couple was really struggling, for 500 guineas, about $700 today, a night could be booked in the celestial bed where the couple would receive regular volts of electricity while making love. Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, was a patient. Artificial insemination was first tried in animals in the late 18th century and was successfully performed in a human in 1799. The first baby born via in vitro fertilization, or IVF, was Louise Brown in 1978. Her team of doctors was awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine. This medical breakthrough gives millions of people struggling with infertility a real chance at conception. Today, about 4 million babies are conceived via IVF in the U.S. alone. Increasingly, IVF technology is being used in gestational surrogacy, where a fertilized egg is implanted in the uterus of a surrogate carrier. This person may or may not be genetically related to the embryo and may be hired to carry the pregnancy. Surrogacy is another fertility option for people who want to become parents but are unable to carry a pregnancy. About 750 babies are born each year in the United States using gestational surrogacy. Pregnancy Tests In the past, determining pregnancy wasn't as easy as peeing on a stick. Prior to the 20th century, only wealthy women had access to consistent, nutritious food. Women with poor or irregular diets often had irregular menstrual cycles, so a missed period wasn't always a sure sign of pregnancy. A woman might guess that she was with child if she had symptoms such as sore breasts, morning sickness, or a swollen belly. But the only sure way to know was when she began to feel the baby move, called the quickening, which usually happens about four months in. Women tried a variety of ways to find out earlier. Ancient Egyptian women would mix their urine into a bag of wheat and barley. If the grain germinated, then the woman was assumed pregnant. If the wheat sprouted, a baby girl would be expected. If the barley, a baby boy. Remarkably, a study in 1963 found that this test actually worked. The urine of a pregnant woman would cause the wheat and barley to sprout 70% of the time, while the urine of non-pregnant women and men did not. The gender-predicting aspect was not conclusive. Both the Egyptians and Hippocrates suggested a woman who thought she might be pregnant insert an onion into her vagina overnight. If her breath smelled of onions the next morning, then she was not pregnant. The idea was that if she was not pregnant, her womb would be open and the smell would travel directly to her mouth. If she was pregnant, then her womb would be closed, blocking the scent. Clearly, there was a lack of understanding of female anatomy at work. Many doctors in history were onto something that the we of a pregnant woman contained special properties. European doctors from the Middle Ages on used urine in a variety of ways to try and determine pregnancy. Everything from observing the color and quality to dropping keys into it, to mixing it with wine, smelling it, and even tasting it was attempted. 16th century optometrist Jacques Guillemot thought that pregnancy could be determined through an eye exam. He wrote that a pregnant woman gets deep-set eyes with small pupils, dropping lids, and swollen little veins in the corners of the eye. There is not much truth to this theory, but women do become extremely tired in the first few months of pregnancy. In the 19th century, doctors observed that about six to eight weeks into pregnancy, the cervix, labia, and vagina can take on a dark blue or purplish hue owing to the increased blood flow to the area. 
This became known as Chadwick's sign after the obstetrician who brought it up at the 1886 meeting of the American Gynecological Society. But the prudish doctors of the Victorian era rarely conducted physical examinations on their female patients, so this logical method of determining pregnancy was not utilized as it could have been. In the 1920s, German scientists Oschein and Zundek determined that there was a specific hormone present in the urine of pregnant women that was linked to ovarian growth. Today we know this hormone as human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG. They discovered that if you injected the urine of a pregnant woman into an immature female mouse or rabbit, and then autopsy the poor beast five days later, growth in the ovaries indicated a pregnancy. The term, the rabbit died, became slang for pregnancy, though in actuality, all the rabbits died. It was later discovered that urine could also be injected into a female frog, and if the amphibian produced eggs within 24 hours, the woman was pregnant, and the frog would live. The first at-home pregnancy test, which detected HCG in a woman's urine, was patented in 1969 and became widely available in the 1970s. Though there were concerns about sexual immorality and women being able to cope with test results without a doctor. Today, easy at-home pregnancy tests are cheap to produce and widely available. Pregnancy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Understanding Pregnancy Ancient Hindus had considerable knowledge of obstetrics. They believed that a healthy pregnancy lasted 10 lunar cycles, exactly the 40 weeks we now go by. They trusted in rituals to ward off demons that might cause the baby to be born deformed, and believed that in the eighth month of pregnancy, the vital force of life was drawn from the mother into the child back and forth repeatedly, so a child born before this time was unlikely to survive. These ideas from India met with medical ideas from ancient Greece and Rome at the crossroads of Alexandria, Egypt. Colleges there were considered the finest of the day and produced some of the best medical thinking. One student, Soranus of Ephesus, wrote a four-volume treatise on gynecology. Although he had many ideas which we know now to be way off base, he actually had a pretty good understanding of female reproductive anatomy. He cast off many superstitions of the day and focused on logical ideas as well as kindness and compassion towards patients. He wrote that the ideal time for conception was the two weeks following menstruation, which is close to the truth, and that women should remain lying down in bed after sex to improve the likelihood of conception, which is debated today. Soranus also invented the vaginal speculums, a key medical device in modern gynecological care, but a discomfort most women wouldn't thank him for. 
Doctors in the Middle Ages were exclusively men, but church law forbade them from performing physical examinations on women or attending births. Even worse, most of them were also priests and monks who were supposed to be celibate. They therefore had some pretty unrealistic ideas about female anatomy, pregnancy, and childbirth. 13th century friar Bartholomew of England wrote, The little child is fed in the mother's womb with minstrel blood. Medical manuscript The Welcome Apocalypse, written in 1420, explains that women are improperly developed men. All of our reproductive organs were thought to be male organs inverted. The vagina was an inverted penis and the ovaries were internal testicles. And all this malformation meant that women were inherently unclean. The mere gaze of a menstruating woman could tarnish mirrors and sour milk. Though it is true that the same structures in the developing fetus can either become its ovaries or its testes depending on its sex, the rest is absolute bunk. Queen Mary I of England was desperate to produce an heir and keep the crown away from her Protestant sister Elizabeth. But as she did not marry until the age of 38, this seemed unlikely. Finally, she began to experience symptoms of pregnancy, a swollen belly and breasts, and no period. She rejoiced and went into confinement with confidence that her legacy would be secured. But the days ticked by with no sign of labor. Her doctors, terrified to deliver bad news to the queen known as Bloody Mary, assured her that boys often took longer, sometimes 10 or even 11 months. Eventually, her swollen belly began to recede, and it was clear that she had never been pregnant. Mary was humiliated. She probably suffered a combination of a tumor and a psychosomatic episode. She died at the age of 42, most likely of uterine cancer. Luckily, medieval women had better help than celibate priests during pregnancy and delivery. They had midwives local women who had experience rather than education and knew a great deal about the realities of pregnancy. But as most of these women were unlettered, their knowledge and techniques were not well recorded. How Pregnant Women Were Seen Pregnant women have long been seen as exalted figures carrying the hopes of the future and the miracle of life. They were often cherished and treated delicately. But this honored position also put a lot of pressure on women to be pure and behave above reproach. Pregnant women in the past and even today are judged for everything from what they eat and drink to going out in public. There are many foods including caffeine, alcohol, raw fish, and unpasteurized cheese that have scientific data to support their potential harm during pregnancy. Though new studies suggest, and many doctors now advise, that they are safe in moderation. However, many expectant mothers forego enjoying sushi, brie, or their morning latte for fear of judgment from others. While these hotly debated restrictions are common in the West, pregnancy taboos are very tied to culture. Some Nigerians warn against eating yams while pregnant as they may make the baby grow too large. Eating fish is thought to delay delivery in Tanzania and cause breech birth in Indonesia, while ancient Hebrew lore says eating fish will produce a graceful child. In traditional Chinese medicine, qi, vital energy, must be balanced between the yin and yang. Pregnant women are advised to avoid cooling foods like ice cream, watermelon, and bananas, as they may cause miscarriage. 
while wet hot foods like shrimp, mango, and pineapple may cause allergies in the baby. Spicy, cold, and oily foods are thought to be generally bad for fertility. It was a commonly held superstition, even into the 20th century, that pregnant women needed to be careful what they saw, heard, and read. It was believed that frightful experiences could cause the child in the womb to become deformed. In Western culture, sex and pregnancy outside of marriage was utterly verboten, and women and their children born out of wedlock were regularly shunned by their communities. Unwed mothers would often leave their homes to live out their pregnancies, give birth, and give the child up in another area, then return home and make up a story about where they had been. In the past, some women spent seemingly their entire adult lives in the constant cycle of pregnancy and birth. The most prolific mother in recorded history was Valentina Vasilyeva a Russian peasant in the 18th century who carried 27 pregnancies. She gave birth to 16 sets of twins, 7 sets of triplets, and 4 sets of quadruplets, totaling 69 children. Talk about a lot of hands on the farm. Noble and royal women were under exceptional pressure to produce as many children as possible, especially male heirs that might inherit their father's property and title. Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, the wife of King George III of the United Kingdom, gave birth to 15 children, and being perpetually with child was very difficult for her. She wrote during her 14th pregnancy, I don't think a prisoner could wish more ardently for his liberty than I wish to be rid of my burden and see the end of my campaign. I would be happy if I knew this was the last time. Holy Roman Empress Maria Theresa gave birth to 16 children and was far too busy running an empire to take time off to care for her health. The day she gave birth to her 10th child, she received the Turkish ambassador, attended an Italian opera, visited her mother, attended mass, and then held a meeting with her ministers. At the end of the day, she went into labor. But the empress did find some limitations. She asserted that, had she not been almost always pregnant, she would have gone into battle herself. Maternity Fashion Prior to the Middle Ages, clothing was not form-fitting and hung loosely off the frame, easily accommodating a growing belly. But in the Middle Ages, dresses began to adhere to the feminine form, and pregnant women had to let out their seams. In the 17th and 18th century, the Adrienne, a waistless pregnancy gown with many folds, was popular. In the 1790s through 1820s, the empire waist was the dominant fashion, and pregnant women rejoiced. In the tight-laced Victorian era, no respectable lady would be caught dead without her corset, and pregnancy was no exception. During this prudish time, pregnancy was unmentionable and embarrassing. Special corsets were worn to restrict and minimize the appearance of pregnancy, and they were not particularly healthy, constricting the growth and development of the child. This mindset continued well into the 20th century. One maternity wear ad from 1923 proclaimed, be entirely free from embarrassment of a noticeable appearance during a trying period. In 1904, the first purpose-made maternity clothing, shirtwaists with an adjustable drawstring waist, were sold in the US by Lane Bryant. 
The dropped waists and slouchy silhouettes of the 1920s lent themselves well to a growing belly. In the early 50s, Lucille Ball was a maternity fashion icon and a pregnancy pioneer. She was expecting her first child during the filming of the first season of I Love Lucy. But CBS and advertisers thought that showing a pregnant woman was in bad taste. The show was a massive hit, and when season two rolled around and Lucy was again expecting, it was written into the storyline, making hers TV's second ever on-screen pregnancy and bringing this normal human experience out from the shadows. Though the word pregnant was still considered too vulgar and Lucy was only ever referred to as expecting. In 1958, stretch fabrics hit the market and were a revelation for pregnancy comfort and fashion. In the 1960s, the empire waist came back into fashion and it has remained a popular maternity style for years. In the first half of the 20th century, smoking was the height of fashion and the dangers were not yet understood by the public. Doctors saw no reason to advise pregnant women to give up the habit. A pregnancy book written in 1944 said that quitting during pregnancy would do more harm than good as it would upset the nerves and that less than a pack a day was fine. In 1971, when confronted by the fact that smoking led to low birth weight, the chairman of Philip Morris famously stated that some women would prefer having smaller babies. Luckily by this time, the dangers of smoking, particularly during pregnancy, were making headlines and women began to quit for the health of their babies. In the late 70s and 80s, more and more women were entering the workforce, though it was still common for women to face discrimination and even be fired when they became pregnant. Business-appropriate maternity wear was finally needed, but the extreme and unnatural proportions of the 80s worked well with pregnancy. Princess Diana was a style icon, and the fashion world followed her looks with a keen eye, including during her two pregnancies. In 1988, Juicy Couture designed maternity jeans. In 1991, actress Demi Moore graced the cover of Vanity Fair, proudly showing off her baby bump. Now expecting celebrities like Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, and Meghan Markle grab headlines with their happy news. Today, people no longer hide their pregnancies under corsets or yards of fabric, instead choosing to emphasize their growing bellies and changing bodies with pride. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation, we hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. There is a corner of Los Angeles where dreams are brought to life. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Where stars are born. Made in Mars! Top of the world! Where legends are made. Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! For over a hundred years, the world has been captivated by Hollywood 
But just beneath the stardust lie a million more fascinating stories. Tales of heroism, villainy, betrayal, passion, tragedy and triumph that when sewn together form an incredible history. The Secret History of Hollywood. Available now wherever you get podcasts. Delivery. Anyone who has seen a pet cat or dog slide out several adorable pups may wonder why childbirth is so difficult and dangerous for humans. It all comes down to our evolution. As we began to walk upright about 4 million years ago, our pelvises became smaller. We also developed bigger brains over the last 1 to 2 million years, which meant that babies had bigger heads and needed to be delivered through a smaller opening in the pelvis. Childbirth became slower, more painful, and dangerous, and women required midwives to assist them as early as 1.5 million years ago. While other animals are able to walk and generally function independently from or shortly after birth, human babies are born essentially helpless and dependent on the care of parents. Scientists theorize that this is because humans should spend at least three more months in the womb, but if they did, their heads would grow so large as to be completely unable to pass through the pelvis and be born. In the birthing chamber. Midwives have been a key part of the birthing process for thousands of years. These women were usually older and had children of their own, so knew from experience what it was like to give birth. They would help and support women through the difficult, very physical ordeal of labor and delivery. They told women when to change positions, rest, and push. They offered herbal potions for pain relief, and when necessary, used their hands to move the baby into the proper position stimulated a newborn's breathing, unwound the cord from its neck, and did anything else that might aid a woman to bring new life into the world. They would be paid a higher fee if they delivered a healthy male heir, but were often paid by the poor in barter. If a child was born deformed, the midwife was liable to be accused of bewitching the babe, and she might pay with her own life. Midwife is Old English for with woman, and they certainly were. In Jamaica, midwives are called Nana, and in Japan they are called Samba or Granny. The most common place throughout history to give birth was in one's own bed, be it in a royal bedchamber or a modest cottage or hovel. But some cultures preferred that a woman in labor find somewhere else to go. The Maori and Japanese banned laboring women from the house to keep out the mess and accompanying evil spirits. Women in Japan gave birth in specially built huts, which were burned down after the mother recovered from the ordeal. Inuits built igloos for women to give birth in. Enslaved women in the American South often had no choice but to give birth in horse stalls and country women in 19th century France often chose to give birth in the barn to get away from other children in the house and avoid cleaning up later. But wherever the birth took place, the mother and child were usually surrounded and supported by a midwife and other female family members and neighbors. In England, it was the expectant father's duty to notify women of an impending delivery by going door to door and nidgeting the community ladies. 
In 16th century France, the sage femme, or midwife, would hang a sign outside the laboring woman's door with a symbol such as a woman holding a baby or a cradle to let the neighborhood know it was time to come and help. Once in attendance, these women would support and encourage the laboring mother, change linens, fetch supplies, and care for the infant, mother, and even husband and older children in the days following the delivery. A childbirth was a celebration as well as a social event, and a great time for sharing the latest village news. These women were called Sisters in God, or God Sibs, the origin of the word gossip. During and after labor, a mother would be offered coddle, a fortified alcoholic porridge or eggnog, which would help to keep her strength up during the ordeal. This treat was shared by the attending women, and a groaning cake or groaning meal was customary to celebrate after a safe delivery. For royal women in the Middle Ages, giving birth was a matter of national importance. They would attend church to pray for a safe delivery and a healthy child, and then retire for a few weeks to their inner bedchamber to relax and prepare for the baby's arrival. Their chambers would be layered with carpets and hung with tapestries. All but one window would be covered to protect the infant from drafts thought to be dangerous. The whole room would be made womb-like and somewhat stifling in preparation for the very important birth. Most medieval women were illiterate, so many of the secrets of the midwives were never recorded and have been lost to time. In 1545, English physician Thomas Reynold wrote The Birth of Mankind, otherwise named The Woman's Book, and he actually recorded some of the practices of midwives. The book illustrates various positions of support as well as a birthing stool. In 1484, Pope Innocent VIII issued a papal bull speculating a vast network of witches throughout Europe. The text accused these sorceresses of having slain infants yet in their mother's womb and of hindering men from performing the sexual act and women from conceiving. The Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of the Witches, instructed men on how to identify and persecute sorceresses. Midwives were often vulnerable older women and widows and were frequently cast under suspicion because of their assumed power over life and death. In the 16th and 17th centuries, over 60,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe. Nevertheless, midwives remained a fixture of the birthing chamber for the next few hundred years. Midwives were always women, especially as many cultures had taboos against any man but a woman's own husband seeing her naked or touching her body. But in the late 18th century, doctors and male midwives saw attending births as a money-making opportunity and began to push out the tried-and-true midwife. They spread literature that accused midwives of being ignorant and dirty. And it was not uncommon to have both a midwife and a male doctor standing over a laboring woman arguing over the best way to treat her. Educated doctors came to be seen as the superior choice among the wealthy, but they were still forbidden to perform full physical examinations on their patients. Doctors would typically drape a sheet over the woman's legs and deliver the baby by feel alone, not offering any of the hands-on support of the midwife. 
Today, the vast majority of babies born in the developed world are delivered in hospitals by obstetricians who will at least look at their patients during delivery. But there is a great move back to the more intimate approach of the midwife, either in home births, birthing centers, or in hospitals. What could go wrong? Bringing a child into the world is one of the most significant events in a woman's life. In the past, it was also the most dangerous and deadly event women had to face. In Europe in the Middle Ages, about one in three women died in their childbearing years, and one in four children did not live to see their first birthday. Women routinely wrote their wills upon discovering that they were pregnant, and they knew as they sewed their wedding dress that it may also double as their burial shroud. There are a variety of things that can go wrong during childbirth, and the medical knowledge of the past was not able to cope with these problems. The most common serious issues are hemorrhage and obstructed labor. Postpartum hemorrhage is when the mother bleeds excessively after the delivery and can bleed out and die very quickly. Midwives of the past had a few ways to deal with this. Ergot, a fungus that grows on wheat and is known to history buffs as the hallucinogen that may have sparked widespread witch hunts throughout Europe and America, was also very useful in childbirth. It was used to induce contractions and could get a slow labor progressing faster, or be taken after labor to help with contractions that would prevent hemorrhage. Breastfeeding was and still is encouraged immediately following delivery. We know now that breastfeeding and bonding with the baby releases oxytocin in the mother, which causes the uterus to contract and shrink, preventing hemorrhage. The placenta, the organ that supports the life of a growing fetus and is delivered shortly after the baby, is full of oxytocin and was fed to the mother after delivery in some countries. In colonial America, bloodletting was the cure-all of the day, and it was even performed on hemorrhaging mothers. It was thought that further reducing the blood circulation would force clotting. Needless to say, this did not work. Obstructed labor is another serious problem faced in the birthing chamber. This is most often the result of a baby being in the wrong position or being too large or the mother having an unusually small pelvis or problem with the birth canal. Medieval medical book The Trotula contains several illustrations of infants in the womb in rather acrobatic positions with quite a lot of room around them. It recommends that if a child is not in the proper position during delivery, the midwife should anoint her hand with butter or oil and simply reach in and pull the baby out. Any doctor or midwife will tell you that this is nothing close to reality. During the birth of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, his mother Victoria, daughter of Queen Victoria of the UK, was in labor for several hours and losing strength when her doctors decided to try and pull the baby out. This resulted in serious nerve damage to Wilhelm's left arm, which left the limb paralyzed and several inches shorter than the right. This disability had a serious effect on Wilhelm, which set in motion a series of events that resulted in World War I. Forceps were invented in the 17th century by the Chamberlain family to aid in difficult deliveries. This family of male midwives used their invention to save the lives of dozens of mothers and babies, but in the highly competitive world of male midwifery, they kept their life-saving invention a secret for 150 years, making it available only to their high-paying clientele. 
the invention was finally leaked to the public in the early 19th century. But while wide use of forceps saved many lives, they also introduced bacteria and could cause another deadly delivery problem, childbed fever. Childbed fever, known now as puerperal fever, was the name given to the mysterious malady wherein women would come through childbirth seemingly healthy, but then contract a fever and sometimes die days or weeks after the delivery. The deaths of Henry VIII's mother, Elizabeth of York, and two of his wives, Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr, are all attributed to childbed fever. With the hindsight of germ theory, we know that what these women really died of was infection, brought on by unsanitary conditions during delivery. In the early 1800s, as more people moved into cities and housing was cramped, unsanitary, and unsuitable for home delivery, more and more poor women began giving birth in hospitals. Unfortunately, the conditions there weren't much better, and infection and death among new mothers was staggering. In the 1840s, Austrian doctor Ignaz Zemelweis observed that the women giving birth in the student-run clinic had an 18% mortality rate, while women giving birth in the midwife-run clinic had only a 6% mortality rate. He deduced that this was because the medical students were performing autopsies on women who had died from childbed fever, and then performing exams on pregnant women without washing their hands. He insisted that the students wash their hands before every examination, and the infection and death rate dropped significantly. But many doctors of the day resented the idea that they were responsible for spreading infection, and instead blamed their female patients' delicate conditions, or immorality. It was not until Louis Pasteur discovered germs in the 1850s that doctors around the world finally began to wash their hands. In rare cases, if the mother was certain to or had already died, the life of the infant might be saved by cutting open the woman's abdomen. Women were not known to have survived this. The mother of Bindusara, the Emperor of India in 298 BC accidentally swallowed poison and died shortly before giving birth. Her child was cut from her womb and survived. This procedure, known as a caesarean section from the Latin to cut, has long been thought to be the birth method and origin of the name of Julius Caesar. However, as his mother is known to have lived well beyond his birth, it is thought more likely that an ancestor of his was born in this manner, giving the moniker to the family. The medieval Catholic Church taught that infants, too young to have committed any sins of their own, were nonetheless tainted by original sin. Therefore, it was crucial that a baby be baptized in order to go to heaven. Baptism was a holy sacrament that was usually given by a priest in church a few days after the baby was born. But if it looked like a baby would not live, a midwife always carried holy water so that she could baptize it and save its immortal soul. They would sometimes use devices like this to baptize distressed infants still in the womb. This meant that midwives were the only women authorized by the church to administer a holy sacrament, and they were required to be licensed by the church. They had to provide references and swear to their Christian faith and moral character, which was far more important than their medical experience. Pain Management 
passing a 35 centimeter object through a 10 centimeter opening involves a significant amount of pain. Opium, a drug derived from the poppy, has been used to relieve pain during childbirth for many thousands of years, along with numerous folk medicines and remedies. In the book of Genesis, God thundered at Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children. So the anguish and danger of childbirth were seen as a direct consequence of the original sin and the fall of Eve. All women inherited this sin and were expected to suffer through childbirth. Because of this, any pain relief that might be offered during labor was seen as sinful, as it would diminish the righteous agony sent down by God. In 1590, a Scottish woman was burned at the stake for asking for pain relief during the birth of twins. Queen Victoria wasn't having any of that. She gave birth to nine children and hated pregnancy and delivery. When she gave birth to her sixth child, Louise, in 1848, she jumped at the chance to use the new invention, chloroform, to reduce her pain during delivery. She was so impressed that she used it again for her final three deliveries. And if the queen was doing it, so was everyone else. Chloroform became popular throughout Europe and America for pain management during childbirth. Years later, when Queen Victoria's son, Leopold, was diagnosed with hemophilia, doctors incorrectly blamed his condition on his mother's use of chloroform. Of course, chloroform was not an ideal anesthesia for anything, let alone childbirth. Dosage and patient condition had to be carefully monitored or the mother was liable to never wake up from the delivery. In the early 1900s, twilight sleep came into use. Queen Elizabeth II was given twilight sleep when delivering her third child, Andrew, in 1960. It was a combination of morphine and scopolamine which induced insensitivity to pain and amnesia. Women didn't remember their deliveries, but were fully conscious and often insensible and uncooperative during labor, sometimes harming themselves. This led many doctors to strap their patients to the bed. Years later, some women regained their memories of these traumatic deliveries, and when the truth of what was really happening in delivery rooms got out, twilight sleep fell out of fashion in the late 1960s. In the 70s, a movement towards natural childbirth without medical intervention or pain relief emerged. Classes based on the work of French obstetrician Dr. Fernand Lamaz became popular. Lamaz classes aimed to build up a woman's confidence in her ability to give birth and taught expectant couples breathing and massage techniques to cope with the pain of labor. Today, in the U.S., the most popular form of pain relief during delivery is an epidural. This technique was first developed in 1921 by Spanish military surgeon Fidel Pajes. An epidural is an injection of drugs through a catheter placed into the epidural space near the spinal cord, which numbs the lower body. People have been pushing for more say in what their birth experience is like and what medical procedures are performed on them and their babies. Husbands and partners have been invited into the delivery room to share in the experience of the birth of their child. We have the many women who went before us to thank for the relatively safe childbirth that we enjoy in the developed world today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be putting out new episodes each Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos. Thank you for listening. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.